I think I'm going to be long-winded today, so let me get right to it. Meet me in Numbers, chapter 21, starting in verse 4, reading to verse 9. This is how the word of the Lord reads. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the, to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. The word of the Lord. I want to tag this text in our exchange. There's, I made a quick little change to what you see in the bulletin. The grace and redirection. That's what I want to talk about. The grace and redirection. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and mercy towards us. We thank you for your son Jesus and all that he has done, and we thank you for your spirit. Lord, it's with that spirit that I ask now that you would meet us in this time of the proclaiming of your word, that it would fall on fresh and good soil, that I would stand on it, and I ask for preaching power to speak the truth and nothing but the truth. Do as you would will in these next few moments. Amen. Patience is virtue. Patience is virtue. Many of you are well acquainted with this saying. Maybe you heard it on TV or in the car listening to talk radio or on a podcast for some of you modern folk. Or maybe you heard it sitting in class or at the dinner table as a child. But on the other hand, I can't imagine that there are some of you here this morning that may have never heard this saying before. You are part of a generation that only knows hurry and restlessness as virtue. So much so that there's actually a, a, a bestseller book titled The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Many of you have probably read it. It is clear to me that the 2021 individual does not see patience as virtue. In your mind, it is either untrue or simply not worth it. Patience is for the weak, 
for the undetermined, the arrogant. It is to say that if you want something in life, then you ought to be able to will it into being, to go after it under your own volition with no consequence. But that ain't none of you. No, that's not you. You are good, astute Christian folk. You, you know your place in the world. You, you understand that patience and waiting on God is uh, good Christian behavior. You never get upset when waiting in line for Starbucks like I do sometimes. Or when I'm at a red light that just turned green and instantly I honk the horn because the person is causing me to be late. They, they are supposed to know that I'm running behind, so they have to get out of the way. Or, or when my family isn't moving fast enough according to my standards. No, that's, that's none of you good folk here this morning. You, you don't ever get frustrated with your place in life because you are the youngest in the room or the least experienced in your career. You are perfectly and joyfully content with being in the midst of the hardest portion of your degree or certification knowing the kind of freedom that lies ahead when you graduate. You never get upset with God when his timeline doesn't match yours. Well, by the way, you all looking at me, I guess I'm the only one in the room that still needs some working on. I, I'm the only one that's being honest today. I get it. The fact that you're already thinking about where you're eating brunch after church or what's for dinner later on tonight, or how you can't wait to watch the Bengals play, or the Falcons, for that matter, or even take a nap. You, you, you are already moving past these few moments. None of those things would suggest that you maybe, just maybe, you have a problem with waiting too. But I want to take it a step further. See, I believe that your struggle with patience is because you don't want to suffer. You don't like the space between what isn't and what will be. As one author puts it, that patience entails much more than merely waiting. It's the essence of patience. The essence of patience is the willingness to endure suffering. After all, Suffering is the meaning of the root word, patience. They are a, a kind of twins of sorts. Therefore, suffering or being patient in your mind means that God is not doing what he said he would do. Oh yeah, your, your distaste, your abrasiveness, your apprehension towards waiting on God is synonymous with your faithlessness in God. Okay, that didn't stick. All right, let me take another swing at it. This text is tailored to teach you and I that your impatience or your unwillingness to suffer is an indicator that you don't believe what God will do, what he says he will do. That's it. Here you and I are getting a front row display of the drama that is called the Israelites. Oh, those people of the past. You could read this and think that they are the main characters in their story. 
After all, this is what precisely the Israelites thought of themselves. The Israelites, who were just divinely emancipated from under the thumb of old Pharaoh. Here they are now a liberated people with a new identity, a new purpose, and none of it was because of what they did or what power they possessed. The God of heaven and earth, Yahweh, as they knew him, had just demonstrated to the ancient world that they are his people and he is their God. Chosen out of the world to be a people of his own possession, an instrument for his own perfect will. Oh, but what kind of people did God choose? Oh, you've read your Bible, you know. These were folk who were lowly. They were homeless. They were poor. They were powerless. God was on their side and not of those of the powerful surrounding nations. It was Moses up on that mountain of God that asked him, Lord, what, what, what shall I tell the people who you are? Moses, tell the people I am. I am is the one who toppled a nation with nothing but the word, the power of his voice. It was I am who sent the locusts and the plagues and the boils and the Passover. It was I am who lifted the seas from their homes in order to create a highway, a getaway for the Israelites. It was I am who made a way when there was no way. It was I am who opened the earth and swallowed up an attempted coup led by Korah and his rebellious henchmen. I am has been the one who has been faithful. When Israel complained, he still showed up. When they were hungry, he showed up. When they got thirsty, he showed up. When they wanted more than bread, what did God do? Birds dropped from heaven so that they can have meat. This is the backdrop. This is the setting of our passage this morning. The Israelites are on the brink of inheriting that very promise, that promise of land flowing with milk and honey. They, they, they could taste and see what was good. They could, they could see it with their own eyes. They have just experienced salvation and victory and freedom. But here they are, grumbling, complaining, talking behind God's proverbial back. We have no food. We have no water. Because what we do have is worthless. God, I just don't like what you give me. It's just not good enough for me. What a picture. What an illustration of the human predicament. When, God, when, when, when God doesn't give us what we want, when we want it, he goes from friend to enemy, victor to villain. That's the tone. That's the tone of the people's query towards God. I, I don't care what you did for us yesterday. I'm concerned what you can do for me today, right now. 
Many of you know my daughter Winslow. She was on full display this morning. I know, I know she's the most adorable. She has a way of making you feel good inside. She just melts you when you look at her. Gets me every time. But as you can see, when dad or mom told her no, that is what we get. She, she if, if, if I don't give her something fast enough or don't give her what she wants, Lord, have mercy. That child becomes something else. She will kick. She will scream. She will yell. She will have a temper tantrum. That is what two-year-olds do. She'll, and this is my favorite. She'll look at me or look at her mother and raise her finger and, and talk back and, and say a bunch of whatever and tell us what we are going to do. What? Why is that? Why is it that her favorite people in one moment can become public enemy number one in the next? Because she is naturally inclined to only care about her needs and wants, regardless of how it would impact her well-being. What a window into the human heart. Your heart. It is easy to say that she is just a child, and that's how children act. But what happens to you when things don't go the way you want, or when your plan isn't going according to your plan? What do you say to God when life has been difficult? What choices do you make after someone or something has told you no? We point the finger at God. We, we hold him in contempt. Then you begin to daydream and imagine what life will be like on the other side of the fence. You look across the way and believe that life is greener with that other woman or that other man. Or to live in that one neighborhood with all the nice things and all the nice people. You begin to justify your behavior because it makes you feel better knowing deep down what you are doing is spiritual erosion. There are times, there are times when the Bible utilizes descriptive language versus prescriptive language, where the Bible is simply describing a story or history. Friends, this is one of those. This is one of those times Moses, he's storytelling to the second generation so that they would not make the same mistakes their parents made. All I'm trying to say is that while you fantasize about what could be and what ought to be, just take a moment to look around and see what is. Lift your head up and see how faithful God has been to you in the present and in the past. To see that he woke you up this morning, that he had kept death at bay at least one more day. He had said to the sun, rise and give light to the world. He brought food to your belly and air into your lungs. He has sustained your existence without breaking a sweat. With the word of his power, the earth somehow 
is still spinning on its axis perfectly without ever skipping a beat. Some of you are scientists. Explain to me how that has always happened. Please give me some scientific equation that can say that somehow this whole thing is still going. The echoes of Job are present here. Where were you when he said, let there be light? Where were you when he separated the heavens from the earth or told the oceans where to stop and the mountains where to stand? Oh, how quickly, oh, how quickly we take God's goodness for granted. I can hear the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 saying to those up there on that mountain with him, if the birds of the air are fed and the flowers of the field are adorned in all their glory, how much more are you valuable to me? Is not life more than what you can see, touch, and taste? You may not have the fancy car. You may not have designer clothes. You may not have that big house or all the zeros in your bank account. You may not have a spouse or prominent social standing or, or professional security. But here's what I do know. You do have a God who loves you. You do have a God who fights for you when you're not looking, who cares for you when your circumstances cannot. You have a God who bankrupted heaven so you could be his again. A God who looked beyond your past and gave you a future. Sometimes God withholds things from us because he knows we don't possess the maturity and the humility to steward it responsibly. In other words, be thankful for what you don't have because it could cause you to stumble. Just maybe you don't have the things you want because you can't handle them. Notice now, Notice now why Israel got into the current predicament with God. Just a moment ago, God had just given the Canaanites into the hands of Israel. They were feeling good after their victory. The, the, the promise that God had given to their forefathers was finally within their reach. There's their promised land. There on the horizon. Literally right in front of them. And what does God say? Yo, Moses, tell the people to go around Edom instead through it. Friends, don't miss what's happening here. Don't be, such, don't be in such a hurry to, to, to move past the details. The quickest, the most convenient route from Egypt to Israel would have been through interstate Edom. That's conventional thinking. That is logical planning. Surely God would take his people the most logical and efficient way to their destination. After all, that's what you and I would do. You know what makes God God? Because he's all-knowing. He, he exists outside of time and space. He sees what we cannot and knows what we don't know. God can see around the corner and up ahead before you and I get there. 
I'm doing my best, church. Come on. You, you, you've got to be picking up what I'm trying to lay down. He, his omniscience is a kind of uh, Google Maps or, or the Waze app for some of you who use that thing. You, you plug in your destination. Your phone gives you the best route available. But every now and then, something up ahead like a crash or a pothole or an emergency or some traffic is in your is in your way and all of a sudden you're rerouted and and you bypass the danger what the israelites did not know is that danger was up ahead death was in their path to go through edom edom meant that they would go through a desert the likes of death valley oh you thought wandering in the wilderness was tough well, you have not met Edom, O oh people. They would traverse an unknown, powerful enemy's territory. They, they did not know that the Edomites would later become their number one adversary. What Israel believed to be inconvenience was actually God showing them mercy. Lord, have mercy. God is not in the business of making you and I comfortable. Instead, he is in the business of making us anew, making us holy and righteous. And, righteous. And, and, and part of that process will entail sanctifying redirection in your life. When God redirects your life, it is not only to save you from danger up ahead, but sometimes, sometimes he, he moves you out the way so you can be prepared for what's up ahead. That's right. His name is on the line here. And, and his number one priority is to see you through this world at all costs. Because that's what he said he would do. And, and you may not like it. You, you may even be confused or discouraged. But here's what I do know to be true. That all things, I said that, that all things work together for the good of those who love God who are called according to his purpose. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give you all things? That's the God we serve. It was a hot summer in New Hebron, Mississippi. This was the year 1946, and John Perkins and his older brother Clyde, two black men, had been out in the town on a typical Saturday in the Jim Crow South. John out with his friends, Clyde with his girlfriend at the movie theater, and there Clyde was, waiting in line, talking to his loved one. And allegedly, allegedly, he and his girlfriend started to get loud with each other. The town deputy marshal had seen what was going on and told them to quiet down. Clyde, a World War II veteran, a man who had sacrificed his life for this country that did not give him dignity, did not see him for who he was, was relegated to racial and biased laws 
And as he was turning to see who had said that, to see who had asked the question, the officer clubbed him. In self-defense, Clyde reached out to, to grab the officer's club to resist the beating. That was all she wrote. The officer, sworn to protect and serve his community, had the full force of Jim Crow South to kill this man unjustly. Moments later, Clyde is lying on the pavement in the streets of New Hebron, shot, bleeding out. Clyde would die that night, and young John Perkins would never be the same. Years later, John would, would make his way back to Mississippi by way of California. When his brother died, he left. He said, I would never be relegated to such a system again. So he bounced. Here he is, back in Mississippi. God had other plans for young John Perkins. Perkins' oldest son had begun going to children's Bible classes down the street. And then his good friend had invited him to that same church. Perkins said he would never believe in Christianity because it was white folks who used this thing called Jesus to oppress people that looked like him. But there he was. There is John sitting in church reading his Bible later for weeks and weeks and weeks. And one day, John had given his life to the Lord. I, I really must be preaching to myself now. I, I, I've got to be. Because God had saved this man in spite of his painful history at the hands of so-called Christians. And you may not know who John Perkins is, but John Perkins is the founder of the largest community development association in the country, maybe the world, the CCDA. And now he, use, he uses the gospel to go into communities that are under-resourced and communities that look like this around the church to bring renewal and dignity to a people who have lost it. That's what God did in spite of what he had endured. He used it to show him something else, to prepare him for a bigger and brighter purpose. All things work together for the good of those who love God. It may seem dark, and it may look gloomy, and when you don't, and when you don't know what to do, or you begin to question where God has you in life, know that God is working on your behalf. He, he is moving when you aren't looking, making a way even though you keep getting in the way. This brings me to the close of my sermon. I just got a few more things to say, and I'll be back to my seat. The scene closes with God sending fiery serpents to deal with Israel's rebellion and unbelief. The Bible says, the Bible says that many people had died. I, I don't know why. That is part of the mystery of God. But it was because of what was happening in Israel that caused Israel to plead with Moses to ask God for forgiveness. But what I do know is that when you confess your sin, 
When you bring all you have to God, when, when you display a godly sorrow, like Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, or as John puts it so eloquently in 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful, he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's good news to me. I hope it's good news to you that you can bring all your mess. You can bring all your shame. You, you, you can do as you please. And God will forgive you. What else in the world can make such a claim? The very thing that God used to, to bring about Israel's repentance is the very thing he used to save them from death. It is not the actual snake on a pole that saves Israel from their deadly predicament. No, no. It is faith in God's word about what would happen if you look up at the bronze snake on a pole. I'm going somewhere. Look and you will be saved. That's the command. That's the application. Look and you will be saved. I'm done now, but I'll leave you with this. What happened to old Israel when they looked up at that snake is the same thing that happens to those who gaze upon a man hanging on a tree. John told us, he told us that just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whoever believes in him will have eternal life. I said they stretched him wide on that wood cut into a cross. They put a nail in each hand. Then they stacked his feet on one another. Then they drove a nail through his feet. Then they hung him high with a crown of thorns on his head. They clothed him in king's garment to mock and laugh. The soldiers led, oh, King Jesus, bring yourself down. Jesus could have done it, but he didn't because he had you in mind. He stayed up there for all the world to sing. He was up there where Jesus, it was up there where Jesus bled and died for you and for me. Into the grave he went and early, that's what they would say in my church growing up, early Sunday morning he got up. He got up with all power in his hand. He got up with death tranquil under his feet. He had told sin and death that you are bondage, that you are slaves no more. He had told the people that you're mine and I'm going to do whatever I've got to do. I'm going to die for you. And you ask, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Thank you.